0: This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand with video and audio lessons so there's no such thing as falling behind you decide the pace you learn at and we provide you with everything you need to study your bible like never before some of our most popular courses include what is the bible windows into the bible the theology of jesus and much more These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com.
1: You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark, tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode.
0: Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast today Dr. R. Stephen Notley. Dr. Notley is Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins on the New York City campus of Nyack College, and the Director of the Graduate Programs in Ancient Judaism and Christian Origins. He received his Ph.D. from Hebrew University, where he studied with David Flusser. Notley lived 16 years in Jerusalem, during which time he was the founding chair of the New Testament Studies Program at Jerusalem University College. He is the author of many books and articles. He continues collaborative research and publication with Israeli scholars in the fields of historical geography and ancient Judaism and Christian origins. Among his list of publications, he co-authored with Lucer the historical biography of Jesus, the sage of Galilee, rediscovering Jesus's genius, with Anson Rainey, the monumental atlas, the sacred bridge, Carter's atlas of the biblical world. With Zeev Safrai, an annotated translation of Eusebius's important description of Roman Palestine, known as Eusebius's Onomasticon. More recently, he rejoined Safrai for their second work, a pioneering collection and translation of the earliest rabbinic parables that provide the literary and religious context for the parables of Jesus. This work is known as the Parables of the Sages. Dr. Notley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. I uh, today we want to focus on a rather interesting topic that I know that you didn't start out going down the the road of being a New Testament historical geographer, but life with its twists and turns has kind of brought you to be really one of the major, if not preeminent, historical geographers as it relates to the New Testament period and the New Testament text. So. I thought we'd have a conversation about that today, so why don't you kick us off by just explaining to our listeners, what is historical geography? Okay, uh, yeah, I love this subject.
2: I remember my response to Anson Rainey when he asked me to participate with him on the sacred bridge. I, I said, I am not trained as an historical geographer, to which he responded, none of us are. So uh, that's, that's not exactly the same today. Now there are formal programs in it, but most of us come at it from a different direction. I, I was trained uh, New Testament studies, literary approach historian, but living in the land of Israel for 16 years, you become very cognizant of the connection between text and land and how the interplay between those two. And so over time, I engaged Israeli scholars, others, and became interested in how this would play out, in our, particularly in our reading of the Gospels. That's my primary interest, historical geography of the Gospels. But historical geography is a multidisciplinary approach. As one of my good friends, Stephen Fine at Yeshiva University describes me, he describes me as a lumper. By which he means I I sort of combine, I come at things from multiple directions. But that is the nature of historical geography, looking at text and reading them, becoming familiar with language, particularly the original language of a historical account, whether it's Hebrew or Greek. And then the other part of it is, is looking at the geography, the geographical setting where the story takes place. There's issues of toponymy. One of the works that you mentioned, Eusebius' Anamosticon, is primarily trying to look at the whole issue of toponymics and trying to identify where places are, their names, and the attachment to particular places. And then finally, also archaeology. Uh, and you and I have been involved in this project at El Arash and the whole question of the site identification of Bethsaida Julius. And to be quite honest, I think this whole initiative is an ideal example of where historical geography rises to the top because you can't arrive at this. You, we would never have gotten to this point simply through archaeology. Archaeology is sort of the confirming discipline. It sort of you know, confirms yay or nay because once you dig, you see, is it here or is it not here? But to arrive at that point, takes a, a sensitive reading of the historical accounts, their descriptions, the general geography that's there I'm working on right now on the issue of toponymics of Eloraj I actually believe that the name Elaraj, which is attached to the place is a, a memory a tenacious memory that identified the place as Bethsaida it's a complex, uh, set of issues that brings us there. But I, I'm firmly convinced that El Arraj is likewise, the name itself is a witness to the site identification. So historical geography comes at an issue in a, in a number of different ways. And you have to work, I believe you have to work in a multidisciplinary fashion to sort of get to the substance of issues that you're trying to resolve. And as you're well aware, that's not usually how scholarship works scholarship generally works that people stay in their lanes. So you get people who work in text who have absolutely no knowledge of the physical setting of the story that they're talking about. You know, you can get an archaeologist who's a very accomplished archaeologist, but couldn't read a text to save their life. I mean, they can't, They can't. and, and I don't just mean reading it, but getting at the contours of the text and reading them in such a way. I guess I became a, I became sensitive to this when I was Anson initially. I guess it was my trial by fire when he asked me to translate Eusebius's Onomasticon, and as I began to translate, which is you know, and I told him I said I'm just a simple New Testament guy, you know, koine Greek, New Testament Greek, but as I got in, I began to realize that there was an interplay between physical setting and language, that when they're describing something, you have to have a sense of what they're describing to actually translate it properly. You can't just sit down with an English-Greek lexicon and translate a text. You actually have to climb inside of that author to see the setting as they see it. It's a very interesting interplay, and it sort of surprised me at the time And that became sort of my entry into the whole field of historical geography, because I think we need to do the same thing in the reading of the Gospels. Most, and you're aware of this already, 99% of historical geographers in the world are all deal in Hebrew Bible. Right. But they're the only ones who understand me. So when I began to talk about land, they get it they understand unfortunately they're not always sensitive to issues of language and history because they tend to want to take the same historical dynamics that existed in the iron age in the old testament period and superimpose those in the new testament and i go you can't so let it. me
0: pause you here a second sorry i'm getting wound up here no 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 it's it, i love it but first of all let's let's take a step back because I want to come to this question about some of the key differences between how scholars who are working in historical geography and like the Old Testament Hebrew Bible differ from how you would see people working in historical geography in the New Testament, how that should be. But I want to take a step back a second. You brought up the excavations of, and the question of Elaraj Beit Can you give us about 12 sentences or so to help everybody kind of get on the same page. Why is this such an excellent example of what you're talking about in terms of this interdisciplinary work in trying to figure out where this site of Batesida Julius was? What evidence
2: we have, the primary evidence, at least the starting point, should be a careful reading of the accounts by people who actually stood there, who walked there, who were present, And too often, people discount them. I remember, as you know, there's an alternate site. And one time I was presenting at a conference, and the supporters of the other site ganged up on me afterwards and said, what's your problem? Why don't you accept Etel as the site of Bethsaida? And I said, because I've read Josephus, who was actually there at Bethsaida Julius, and it doesn't look anything like he describes And their response was, he exaggerated. So there you had it in sum. They (laughs) discard the historical witnesses. And that's that's where historical geography, it's not just archaeology. You have to have the history to know how to interpret the material culture. No one interprets the material culture in a vacuum. And in this instance, they, for 30 years... By default, since they were the only excavation, they kept excavating, excavating, and they completely ignored the historical descriptions and witness. That's there, Josephus, New Testament.
0: What are our main historical witnesses when we're talking about Bateside Julius? You have Josephus,
2: New Testament, of course. Those are your two primary ones for pre 70 setting. You have a couple of others that are a little bit later that speak to its continuing presence there, and of course, you have a couple of, you have some rabbinic, References to the site that continue in the second and third centuries. But in the New Testament period, particularly, let's say, in the Roman period, the early Roman period, our primary witnesses are Josephus in the New Testament. And they're very clear about what's there and a general geographical sense as to where it was located. In fact, Josephus is, he actually gives us measurements. He actually describes with measurements right. where Bethsaida Julius was in relationship to the Jordan River. So between that and being on the lakeshore, that sort of limits you as to where you should be looking. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: No, it, it absolutely does. And just, just to to give a little bit more background to our listeners, so there's been a question going back into the 19th century as to where the location of Batesida of Julius was. There's been two sites that have been identified. And as Dr. Notley alluded to, for the past 30 years, the site of Ettel has been excavated. And it's both its archaeology and also its geographic location do not fit what the primary sources that he's mentioned say to us. So, a number of years ago now, about seven years ago, eight years ago, a group of us, Dr. Nolly, myself, and some others, along with, uh, headed by Professor Mordechai Aviam, uh, began a project of excavating this alternative site of El Arraj. And as you mentioned, our question is really a question of historical geography and trying to see if the archaeological evidence fits what the ancient sources say. And so far, it looks kind of promising. It looks very promising.
2: Now, I would say, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, one of the things I think folks are always surprised about, I don't think people appreciate when they go get on a plane, they go to Israel, they get off, you know, they go to Caesarea, they go to Capernaum, they go to Nazareth, and they just assume everybody's always known where all these, these sites are. And they don't realize that for the vast majority of biblical sites, they were destroyed, abandoned, and forgotten. This is why Eusebius's onomasticon right. is important. It's like a snapshot at the end of the third century, beginning of the fourth century, pre-Byzantine, his description, his attempt to describe where places are. He would say, you go down this road 10 miles, turn left, literally. This is how he writes. And so it helps us to sort of try to figure that out. What we're a part of is a process that began in the middle of the 19th century, as Mark mentioned, where explorers came out, not digging, but they came out with the text in one hand, and they, you know, by horseback, other things, and they began to surmise and try to figure out where were these places, using the geography against the descriptions they had in the various written accounts. And they you know, there were several of them that came along. And so sites began to be identified. And then archaeology, which really only began seriously at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, then would come along and dig on a site and look and see if there were material remains that fit the historical description. The way I describe it is that if you have multiple independent sources coming from different directions, describing an event, let's say settlement at a place, or destruction, maybe it was a war there, a battle, something, you have independent descriptions of a particular site, and then you excavate it, and you can't find evidence for those historical descriptions, it should at least be a reason to pause and ask yourself, am I on that place? and that's what happened for 30 years they dug and they brought up tremendous remains i don't want to underestimate it. it's a fantastic iron age site but they didn't find there the things that match our roman period i.e. new testament josephus description of what should be there and that's why Those of us who are involved in this project came along and said, let's try another place. And thus far, nothing that we've found contradicts, and I would actually say it actually fits much stronger, much more appropriately, with the historical description that we have in the sources.
0: I would agree. So now let's jump back to this question What do you see, you mentioned that most, the vast, vast majority of people that are in the field of historical geography are primarily concerned in looking at it from the the standpoint of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. What do you see are some of the key differences? Because I agree with you that, so to say the discipline, while it's multidisciplinary, whether you're looking at it through the lens of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, or the New Testament, but there's a difference, and there are differences. What would you see are those differences between doing historical geography of the New Testament, the Gospels, versus what typically um, happens within the discipline of historical geography as it relates to the Old Testament? It's history.
2: It's changed. The situation has changed. It's, um, you know, I, I like to say that you know, to sort of take a jab at my own community, is that I'm always amazed that people who believe that Jesus came in the fullness of time have absolutely no interest in the times in which he lived. <laughs> and they do not spend the time of looking at the historical setting. I'll give you a, the most glaring example. This will be, and, and Mark, you know this already because you, I think you did a paper on it as well. But the, I had the other day I, I was corresponding with a good friend of mine, really good scholar, and he was wanting to do some things on the site identification or the place name of Armageddon. And of course he was trying to attach it to Megiddo and with Megiddo and I said, you know, I said, I don't want to really get into this, I've got other things going on, but I would just tell you is it cannot be Megiddo. Armageddon cannot be connected to Megiddo. And he was sort of shocked because you know, and you know it, Mark. 99% of 90, you know, every pastor goes up there on on Tel Megiddo and does a sermon about, you know, look out over this plain. This is, you know, this is the Valley of Armageddon. And as you know, it's something it doesn't. Right. That language doesn't exist in Revelation 16:16. 16, 16. There's no Valley of Armageddon. But I said it can't be. It's impossible. He goes, Why is it impossible? I said because in the first century, no one knew where Megiddo was. How can it be the point of reference? for the final battle if it's already been destroyed and forgotten for centuries. I said, Josephus doesn't even know where the Jezreel Valley is. We we assume Correct. today that everybody has the same body of knowledge that we have, that we've been able to gain over 150 years of scholarship. And it didn't exist then. These things were were forgotten. And there were gaps of times, gaps of knowledge, and I said, how can it be used for a point of reference when no one knows where Megiddo is? Why would it be used to create this name of Har Megiddo? I mean, there's a whole—you and I both know there's a whole host of problems with that, but just that one right. illustrates what I'm saying is that it's a favorite for, you know, historical geographers of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Why? Because Megiddo was so strategically important, you know, and it was this gateway, and you know, they talk about it being the gateway to the Galilee and all this, and it, it was in the Iron Age, but not in, not in the Roman period. Right. And so they sort of, it has this importance in the earlier centuries, and they want to superimpose it on the first century. And I go, but it's completely changed. This is not a, this is not, you have to, Grapple with the historical setting. I mean, we we've spent another session, you know, talking about the religious setting for parables, talking about that In historical geography. You have to look at the historical setting that's going on and how that affects our our reading of the text. And I think that's that is a an important difference is that we have to engage seriously the first century setting in the early Roman period to understand the dynamics that are going on in the Gospels.
0: If you're enjoying the Windows Into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows Into the Bible Book Club and Bible Study is a virtual, on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the Book Club and Bible Study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible, and that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the Book Club and Bible Study receives a Bible study, notes, and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week, a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the Book Club each month, led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low stress, no fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to witbuniversity.com to join today. That's witbuniversity.com. See you there. Let me ask this. Do you think, because one of the things that I see here is that often a big difference between historical geography in the period of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Also, and this even goes to your point about Armageddon and and so forth, which we've actually done a podcast on, that really part of what makes the difference between that historical world of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible versus the New Testament is the fact that by the time we get to the New Testament, people are interacting in an intertextual way. With the Hebrew scriptures, so that also influences to a certain degree certain aspects of what we find happening geographically, or at least being reflected sometimes again, like in the Armageddon uh, passage out of you know Revelation 16 16. I know some of the work that you've done in the Gospels. Do you see that as also playing a key difference? I mean, I, I know that that's part of the the times have changed. But to me, I find that the, the Hebrew scriptures are also not from the standpoint of them trying to go back and be historical geographers, but the intertextual interpretive environment of ancient Judaism is also one of the things that's differentiating it.
2: No, true. There are times when they're using the Hebrew Bible to like a lens, if you will, to describe the current setting, the current situation. I mean, for me, one of the clearest ones, of course, is a reference to the Sea of Galilee, which is a name for that body of water that Jesus never knew. It was not called Sea of Galilee in Jesus' day. This is the development of a place name. I believe, early believers, followers of Jesus, but it is a Christian name. Uh, I did a, an article a few years ago in Journal of Biblical Literature on this. That it is a it's an amazing thing actually. It only appears in Matthew, Mark, and John, and all in Roman right up into the Byzantine period and move into the fourth century. No one ever calls it the Sea of Galilee except for Matthew, Mark, and John, and no one ever calls it even a sea. It is a lake. It's not a sea. I used to years ago when I was guiding, you know, guiding groups, and people would say, you know, why, why do they call it a sea? Because everybody gets there, and they realize this is a freshwater lake. And of course, I would, since I didn't have an answer, I'd make one up, and you know, I'd say, well, it's just the ambiguity of the Hebrew yam; uh, it just means a large body of water, and that's not it. It is the it, it was an intentional creation of a place name by early followers of Jesus, to try to take the passage out of Isaiah chapter 9 and to uh, read it and define the setting in which Jesus ministered so that not only what he did, but where he did it had significance. Right. And so you find actually in Matthew, not that Matthew creates it, but Matthew witnesses to this where he quotes the Scripture um I'm looking here, it says, Now when they heard that John had been arrested, and this is Matthew 4.12, leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, toward the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, etc., etc. And then the next verse he says, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee. That's the first time we have that expression in Matthew's Gospel. And it's coined out of that verse because that's the only verse in the Hebrew Bible that has, in Isaiah chapter 9, has both Yam and Galil in it. So in a sense, they pull it out and create a small a small midrash, you might say, on that passage and and, right. and, and rename that body of water Basically to say that when Jesus is by the sea, on the sea, around the sea, it's fulfilling this passage of Scripture, but, which I'm okay with. I mean, I, I don't have any problem with the theological direction of that, but when we ask as an historical geographical question in terms of what do what did people call that body of water in the first century, Josephus tells us that the local inhabitants called it the, the Lake of Guinnessar. They never call it a sea. It's never called in Greek "thalassa." It's always called limne. It's always a fresh body of water. You're right in the sense that they are engaging the Hebrew scriptures at time, and they're sort of using them as a lens to interpret what's going on around them, to interpret the stage that's there. As I said, you have to climb inside of them and try to understand and read it from the inside out.
0: Well, let me... Because I think that this question will kind of bring us to our conclusion, but I, but it, but it, there's a couple of layers to it, and I want to go back to something that you just said, that Josephus mentions that it is always called the Lake of Gennesar, and of course, that's always how we find it referenced in Luke's gospel. So, can you talk a little bit about in your work how historical geography? Can help us to understand, evaluate the Gospels, their sources. And of course, lurking behind my question here, as you know, is this often repeated mantra among New Testament scholarship that Luke doesn't know the geography of the land, that Luke is unfamiliar with the geography of the land of Israel. Yet, on this point that you just mentioned, with Josephus, Luke is in perfect agreement here. And of the gospel writers, from the standpoint of the actual geography of the lake, he calls it exactly what it is. So can you say a bit in terms of how the discipline of historical geography as you've worked with it within the gospels helps you to understand, evaluate the gospels, their sources, and even maybe say a word about this off-repeated mantra about Luke's geographic ignorance as it relates to the land of Israel.
2: Sure. I think one of the reasons that Anson actually asked me to work with him on the sacred bridge is he knew who I'd studied with. I'd studied with Flusser, and Flusser often asked his students to write a chapter in their thesis addressing the issue of the literary relationship of the Gospels, which I had to do. I was... I was trained like everybody else, most everybody else, where you're taught, you know, that Mark is the first gospel, and Matthew and Luke use Mark, and they probably used a secondary source, which is called Q, which is those things that exist in Matthew and Luke together but aren't found in Mark. So you have this common second source. So I would say it's got to be 95% of New Testament scholars, this is the assumption of how we got our Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. John is a different conversation, but the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is how it's understood. And if I can even say it, I would say that this is the foundation of 20th century New Testament scholarship and Gospel scholarship. Whether it's liberal, evangelical, doesn't matter. This is how people generally understand it. I will just say it doesn't work It doesn't answer the questions of what we have in the text on a number of different levels. And you know this because we have these continuing conversations, issues of language, Hebraisms that exist in Luke's gospel. How does Luke have them? And they're not in, in Mark. He's obviously dealing with something other than Mark here. And historical geography, I think, is one of the clearest ways in which to demonstrate that Luke is not writing his gospel using Mark. From beginning to end, he demonstrates an intimate, firsthand familiarity, either him or his source, whatever his source is. I don't know where Luke, he talks in the the first chapter, first four verses, he talks about his sources. So he doesn't tell us what they are. But whatever they are, they're not Mark. That I can say because he demonstrates an intimate familiarity back to the question of the lake. Uh, Not only does he not know the Sea of Galilee, he always consistently calls it in Greek limne, which means fresh water. The other Gospels call it thalassa, which is brackish water, not fresh water. And Luke is the only one who knows the nature of the lake. And yet New Testament scholarship consistently says he's ignorant of the land, One New Testament scholar says that for Luke, the lake is just an image. It's not really a reality. It only is a symbol. And that's just, it's crazy. It's because that isn't what we find. We find that Luke consistently knows the land. He avoids the, what I would call, late markers. Not only does he know an intimate understanding of the land, but it's an early picture of the land. As you know, the land is changing right. from the time of Jesus' death up through 70, 80. Things are changing on the ground. The geopolitical situation is changing. You and I have talked about this. He alone has Pilate sending Jesus to, to Herod Antipas because he's the governor of the Galilee. Right. That geopolitical reality of the distinction between Galilee and Judea disappeared in the 30s after Antipas steps down or is deposed that disappears. And yet Luke reflects a geopolitical reality that the other gospel writers don't know. Only Luke knows it. And it reflects a very early picture of the lay of the land and the the political situation that's unfolding there. So we have a number of these examples where Luke, without any question, is far, far superior in his witness of the land, the reality of the land, to Mark and Matthew without any question. And the that's not to say that Mark and Matthew don't have value, but the to suggest that what New Testament scholarship does, that Lucas, some third-hand writing of the story, is absolutely ridiculous. He has early material and very good, solid testimony on this material. It actually is borne out in terms of the geography of the land, the history of the land, in ways that He could not, he can't be writing someplace outside of the land, or his source is coming from outside of the land with no firsthand intimate knowledge of the land. That it's impossible, he can't do such a thing from beginning to end. We have in Luke's gospel that kind of, I would say, superior witness, if you will,
0: right. I think you bring out a really important point that often you do not find being addressed, I feel, carefully enough. And that is the the fact that when we look in the first century, there is, as you said, things on the ground are changing. And there's actually quite a bit of rapid turnover, you know, from the very beginning of the first century through the ministries of John and Jesus. You know, then you get to Herod's grandson, Agrippa the First, that we, of course, encounter in the book of Acts, and then everything shifts after he dies, and, and I agree with you. I think that you find a much more nuanced and sensitive presentation of these kind of geopolitical realities in Luke's gospel. Let me ask you this kind of final question as it relates to this, then. The fact that we find these geographic markers in the Gospels, but as you've articulated, particularly in Luke's Gospel, and geography is not theology. What does that say to you as it relates to the preservation of these sources that we find in the Gospels in terms of using historical geography to provide an evaluation of those? You're talking about in terms
2: of the things, the elements that are preserved in Luke's gospel being sort of relatively unimportant theologically, but they're very important in terms of... Correct. No, I think that's the whole point, is that Luke is not... He does not preserve these things for some kind of a theological agenda. I tend to think that Luke was fairly conservative in his preservation of his sources. He clearly can write Greek well, yet after we get out of you know verse 4 1-4, four, throughout his gospel it is dominated by a sort of a hebraic greek if you will influence and so that signals to me that he's being careful about preserving his his sources and his in his presentation and i think that's borne out in terms of the historical geography and by doing that, he avoids some of the pitfalls that we find, or, you know, I think lapses that we find in the other Gospels. Very few people talk about the fact that the Decapolis, as a league, did not—we have no evidence, no hint of it existing before the Jewish revolt. Right. Not one. Even though you can read books talking about being founded by Alexander or by Pompeii, there's nothing about this in historical sources. No inscription, no coinage, nothing. And yet Luke is the only one of the synoptic Gospels who avoids that. That, For me, that's a diachronic element. It signals the time period that Mark and Matthew are being written at a time when the Decapolis existed. Luke doesn't have it. Right. And when we find these piling up, if it was one thing, we could say, ah, it's a coincidence. But when we continue to find them one after the other piling up, the evidence becomes mounting to the point where you say, Luke is writing here an independent story that may share some common sources, but he's working independently of these other two Gospels. And as you know, to suggest that in the field of New Testament studies becomes nuclear, because you've just challenged the foundation of a century of New Testament scholarship. And it's, it's right. this is why people circle the wagons very quickly— because there are so many things built upon that foundation. It becomes, you know, you find yourself in the crossfire.
0: So Absolutely. And, you know, I would just kind of also add to that, that to arrive at that, you started off talking about historical geography being a multidisciplinary approach. And actually, that's exactly how you... Have to approach the Gospels in and of themselves. It's not just the specific topic of historical geography. In fact, listeners to the podcast will note that even my use of the windows into the Bible, these four windows that I talk about, I actually, and I always give him credit, but this was Anson Rainey's four dimensions of historical geography spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual. And to your point, in terms of looking at at Luke, it's not just about taking a theory and making the evidence fit the theory, but it's actually bringing a multidisciplinary approach that is language focused, that is taking seriously ancient Jewish culture and religion, but also the historical and geographic reality of the land of Israel. Not just in the first century, but over the tumultuous decades of the first century that present a very different picture when you look at it that way than what often gets represented within the bulk of New Testament gospel scholarship, historical Jesus scholarship. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Notley, for joining us today. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows Into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, at Mark Turnage, M-A-R-C-T-U-R-N-A-G-E. See you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. It's Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows Into the Bible podcast was to show how by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site, expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel turkey greece jordan italy and egypt if you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the bible reach out and the biblical expeditions team can make that happen go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about biblical expeditions and upcoming trips, and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible.
1: been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.